All right, we're going to start uh, a new series here this morning, which will take us mostly through the end of the year. That sounds like a long time, but it's not. There's only 16 weeks uh, outside of Christmas time, uh, all the way up to November. 16 weeks. It's coming quicker than we knew it. Huh? Uh, but there are 16 chapters in Romans. And so this is what we're going to attempt to do. One chapter each week. I know it sounds miraculous, doesn't it? Uh, we are going to attempt one chapter each week. What I want to do with the book of Romans, I, I want to whet your appetite that you will go home this week and read the chapter that we share this morning from Romans chapter 1. Spend some time this next week reading it. I've been working in Romans on my own, just studying and reading and, and uh uh, even setting it as my devotional time uh, for a while and just going over it and over and over it. And uh, I even change translations as I do it and such so I, I, I can saturate myself with the words of this text. Um, it's a powerful book. And I think it's essential for us to know it. Uh, I believe that uh, this is the essence of the teaching of the Apostle Paul where he went. This is what he shared. Uh, we often hear that he taught, and that sometimes he can talk, talk clear into the dark, can't he? But uh, I believe that this is a good uh, picture of the truth, the foundations of our faith, things that we, we really must know. They're foundational truths. And so I have just, uh, chosen to go one chapter each week and highlight a foundational truth from each chapter. And I pick one verse that I think summarizes the whole chapter. Alright? And so everything will be centered around that. And I'm just going to kind of give you my outline that we're going to see for the next 16 weeks. And if you can't keep up with me as I'm reading this off to you, you're here every single week. Alright? Or just keep adding to it as we go. But today we want to talk about this fundamental truth that salvation is only accomplished by the power of God. In chapter 2, salvation cannot be bargained for. In chapter 3, the depth of our sin makes it impossible to earn our salvation. Number 4, faith alone, faith first, justifies the ungodly. Number 5, salvation is the gift of God. Number 6, we are united with Christ. We should not continue to sin. Number seven. We have the newness of the Spirit. We don't have to continue to sin. Number eight. We can live godly lives because God dwells in us. Number nine. God is the initiator of our salvation. Number ten. We are responsible. Responders to salvation. Number 11, God gets the glory. Those are foundational truths that this book shows us. And then after you get after chapter 11, it turns to duty. Things that we are called to do in light of these things. It starts with the therefore. And in chapter 12, it says our, it speaks of in God getting the glory, our personal devotion to God. In chapter 13, our public devotion to God. 
in chapter 14, our relationship with others who are devoted to God. Or chapter 15, accepting others as Christ accepted us. And then 16, that truth must be applied. And that's where we're going. Each week, our ad, our just bring up one of these and we'll go with it. Uh, this week, chapter number one, the foundation of our faith is simply that salvation is only accomplished by the power of God. Now, verse 16 is our key verse. Chapter 1, verse 16. Everything will center around this today. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Heavenly Father, as we start a study of this wonderful book you've given to us, warm our hearts as you did to those that you shared with on the Emmaus Road. Warm our hearts to the things of Christ, the salvation that he gives to us. Show us again the depth of your love, the greatness of your power, in what you can do. Thank you, Lord, for it. Uh, we wait eagerly to learn from you. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, follow with me. I'm just going to read all 32 verses, chapter number 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they did not, they knew God, they did not honor him, or not honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, in the form of corruptible man, and a bird, and four-footed animal, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over, in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that they, their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged their natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as it did, they did not see fit any longer, or to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Wow, what a powerful chapter. This book, and I've told you this before, is a book that the Lord used to change me. I'm much different than I used to be. Even in my understanding of what Christ had done for me. When I understood the gospel years ago, I understood we were sinners. We understood Christ died on the cross. I knew David and Goliath, Peter, uh, John healing the lame man, different stories like that. But what I did not know, God taught me through this book. It changed my life. It changed my life. I, I learned the essentials of salvation was more than just uh, the things I had been taught. And those things were so weak. I had a belief that me, mankind as a whole, had control over our own salvation. I had a belief that to be saved was something I caused. I brought it about. I should pat myself on the back. I was so clever. That I could save, that I could bring this about, because I believed in Jesus. And to maintain that, salvation was up to me. And yet, at the same time, I was taught that sin could cause me to lose it. I was taught as well that I could decide to give up on it too. That's where I was. Until I read this book. It's changed my heart. It's changed my life because what I found in this text is that uh, God's word is stunning. And my theology was wrong. 
It was wrong. Salvation is God's work, not mine. I didn't think of it. I didn't bring it about. I cannot maintain it. I cannot remove myself from it. It's all God's work. That's what He has done. He planned it. Christ paid for it. The Holy Spirit applied it. God promised what assures me and His power keeps me. You know what? That's changed my life. It's a whole new perspective of what God has done, not me. John MacArthur wrote in his Romans commentary that to understand and positively respond to the truth of the gospel is to have one's time and eternity completely altered. And that is true. Your time and eternity completely altered. Take your your mind back to eternity past for a minute. I know we weren't there, were we? (laughs) But we put in our mind what we understand that took place there in Genesis chapter 1. Before even creation was made, there was darkness, there was no light. There was no gray, there were no specks of flickers, it was black. Deep, deep black. And in a moment of history, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Everything changed immediately. Everything changed intensely. Everything changed completely. I like to think of that as the picture of salvation as well. At one time we were walking in darkness. Without God, without hope in this world. Without life. Without any sort of hope. Without any help, lost as a blackness I just described. And God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That moment, folks, is miraculous. In this passage, in Romans 10, we saw, actually, as I read through it, three displays of the power of God. Three displays. In chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about creation. And it says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nation have been clearly seen. His power is on display in creation. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, His power is on display. Once again, you have that picture of death. Jesus Christ had died on a cross. But who brought Him back? Who gave Him life? Well, God did. God is the giver of life. He invented it. He is life. And in the resurrection, that's a miracle. God took one who is dead and made him alive. And that's what it says here in chapter 1, verse 4. Who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's two displays. The third display that God uses to show his power is there in verse 16. It is the gospel. 
It is the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's a, it's a display we can't miss. Creation, resurrection, salvation. They're all displaying God's power. So let's look at this key verse today. Let's break it down into its key elements and understand what this verse is saying. If you take all the, the words outside or in this text and move them to the side and keep it to the essential of what he says, he says the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And what's neat about that, even in the way it's defined here, the gospel is marked by an ever-present nature. Let me define that for you a little bit as we go here. It says, it is, not it was. Is that a significant statement? Oh, yes, it is. It is. History is, has marked some significant events. History is marked by some significant individuals, and even some who were quite capable of proclaiming the gospel. Peter, on one occasion, we read that some 3,000 people were saved in his message. Would you say that's significant? Oh, yes. After healing the lame man, 5,000 people came to know Christ. That's quite significant, too. Over the years of history, we could go with big names like Jonathan Edwards. You've heard that name before. At least you've heard his sermon, at least by the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You should read that sometime. Powerful message. But many came to know Christ because of that, that singular sermon. We read of men like Martin Luther. We read of men like William Tyndale or Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or Billy Sunday. We, the list is large. Gospel proclaimers where people responded. Many, many people responded in the course of their ministry. Now these men that I just mentioned are historical figures. Placed now in our book of history. The messengers are gone. But the message is still the same. It is the power of God. It's not, it was as if it belongs in history with them. It is still the power of God. That's the same gospel that reaches lives and souls. It's still here. It's still here. It's got an ever-present nature. It's also got a singularly possessed nature to it, too. It is the power of God. It is the power of God. In the Greek language, we call that the genitive case. That means that it's a case of possession. It's a case of belonging. It identifies one who possesses the power to save. One. Very singular in that statement. One who possesses it. Only God possesses the power to save. Only God does. And this gospel is the only way that God chose to provide for it. It's the power to save. Now that's contrary to our modern culture, I know. 
our modern cultural set says to be politically correct and sensitive to other cultures and inclusive of other faiths and such, we should give more room here. Romans refuses to. You can take all those claims out there. Take the claims of, of Buddha and Confucius. Take the claims of Muhammad. Take the teaching of Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons. You can bring all in that Scientology has to offer, the philosophers, the Greek mythology, the Roman emperor worship, all of that. Take it all, make a pile of what they believe. Stand up on top of it, and you will be no closer to heaven than if you believe nothing. Understand? But take nothing and stand on Jesus Christ, and you've got salvation. That's the power of God. That's the distinction that we are looking at here, because he says, it's my power that saves. It's my gospel. That's singular. It's possessed only by him. No one else. No one else. Start with nothing. Just put the gospel of Christ there. You'll see the power of God to save a man, a woman, a child, a boy or girl. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Statement of, uh, of the gospel here, it's so singular. It is possessed by God alone. It is the power of God. Don't miss those words. The power of God for salvation. It's singular. Singularly possessed. Ever present in its nature. And thoroughly powerful in its nature. Thoroughly powerful. You know... What I like especially about chapter 1, and I know as I read through this, you saw how things started in a really upbeat manner. He's talking to the Romans, and he's, he's really upbeat. And then everything just changed. You know those days when you're outside, you're working, and, and the sun's out, and I know it's been hot lately, but the sun's out, and it's a beautiful day, and you're enjoying it, and then there's that sudden gust of wind, and then the clouds are there, and everything's changed. It's almost like that between verse 17 and verse 18, isn't it? In verse 17, he, he's talking about the righteous men shall live by faith, and then the very next phrase, and the wrath of God, he starts in it, really, it, it hits that minor key. <laughs> Feels like it, if you want to define it that way. There are radical changes in this chapter. And you say, well, what, what's the point of this? Paul is showing us the power of the gospel. He brings up the gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. He's set apart for the gospel of God. He says in verse number 9, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son is my witness as how unceasingly I make mention of you. He brings it up in verse 15. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. You see it, obviously, in verse number 16. He brought up the word faith several times as we read it. 
Verse number 5, he talks about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles. Verse number 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Verse number 12, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gifts to you. I'm sorry, that's 11. That is, that I may encourage together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 17, he brings up that statement here. It is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now that's a statement you've heard before, right? The, the just man shall live by faith. It's said four times in scriptures. Habakkuk has a record of it. Romans has a record of it. You'll find it in the book of Galatians. There's one more. Hebrews. Why would God say the same thing four times? Because he must know that we are like children, and sometimes we need to be told four times. The just man shall live by faith. Here's another fact in that. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, he never changed his idea on this one. That is his requirement, no matter what. The righteous man shall live by faith. He will require that today. He will require that tomorrow. He will require that to the end of time. The righteous man must live by faith. He keeps bringing it up. So here you've got the gospel, the power of God, and here you have the issue of faith. Do those go together? They must go together. That's essential that we have faith in what he has done. That we believe it, that we trust it in what he has done. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's your faith. To everyone who believes. Now, that change that you see from verse 1 through 17 to verse 18 through 32. Let me define it for you real simple. What he does with the pronouns in chapter 1, 1 through 17, is you. He's talking to the Romans, but he's talking to believers in general. And he says you, 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 you. When he turns to verse number 18, he starts talking about them. 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 There's a marked difference between these two. And it's the power of God that makes the difference. Look at the first list. This list concerning you. As Paul addresses the Romans and believers in general. Paul says in verse number 1 that he's just a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's called an apostle. He's a bondservant. He's set apart for the gospel. In verse 5, he says, we have received grace. We have received apostleship. Verse number 6, he says, we've been called of Jesus Christ. Verse number 7, we're beloved of God. We're saints. Verse number 13, he calls us brethren. That's not a bad list, is it? Called of Jesus Christ. Recipients of grace, beloved of God, 
called saints? Is that who you are? You believe in Jesus Christ? That's who you are. That's you. That's the list. A recipient of grace, right? Called of Jesus Christ, right? Beloved of God, true? All these things he says. We're brethren. We're saints. We're going to start making little statues of all of us now, right? No. We're saints. Set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for God. That's all Paul says he was. I'm just a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He tells me go, I go. He says speak, I speak. I'm his servant. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. It's a pleasant thing to have. Pleasant thing to be. We are brethren in this thing that God has done for us. But you won't find that list from verse 18 on. When he describes them, notice the difference of the words. Verse 18, he speaks of ungodliness. He speaks of unrighteousness. He speaks of men who suppress the truth. In verse 21, he speaks of men who do not honor God, who would not give thanks, who are futile in their speculations, who have foolish hearts and now darkened hearts. When he goes into 22, he says they're professed to be wise, but they're fools. In verse 25, they worship and they serve the creature. Verse 26, they give themselves to degrading passions. In verse 28, They give themselves to a depraved mind. Verse 29. A horrible list in verse 29. Filled with all unrighteousness is probably the best expression of the whole thing. Now let me say this as clearly as I can. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, the only thing that makes a difference between you being in the first list or you being in the second list, is the power of God to save you. That is the difference the power of God has made. For when we looked at verse 18 through verse 32, that truly describes what we were saved from. We once walked in the course of this world. We may not have practiced everything that they practiced, but we walked with them. Ephesians tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we merely walked along and sang their tune and played their games. We were part of that course. And if it wasn't for the mercy of God, that's where we would be today. That's where we would be today. See, when we read this list, 18 through 32, and we say, oh... That's bad stuff. That's our culture. That's, you know, we see that all around us now. <laughs> What's missing? Everything on this list is in, before our eyes. We see these things. But sometimes we read this list and we can go into the instant uh, phase of judging and being critical and pointing fingers. I know how easy that is. But let's remind ourselves of this thing. God can save anybody on that list. He has saved us. That's the power of God to save. To anyone, right? 
to everyone who believes. He saved sinners. Paul says, he even saved me, and I was the chief of them. If he's the chief, I'm the assistant. But he saves us. That's the power of God. That's why it's in the center of this chapter. You can have beautiful things on one side and ugly things on the other side, but right in the middle, don't miss it. It's the power of God that changes it all. He's brought about the good, and he can change the bad. This is the point that Paul makes. It's very direct. The difference the gospel makes. The Romans lived in a culture of emperor worship. They believed in the deity of man. They believed in the accomplishments of man. They held their gods and their list of gods to be superhuman men who did amazing feats. A very man centered kind of worship. And outside of us naming them as gods, that's still our culture today, the worship of man. We've just changed the images, perhaps, or the practices. Uh, we haven't set up temples, so to speak, to this particular sin or that particular sin, but we still are a very man-centered world. Paul says, I have never been to Rome. You caught that as you were hearing the passage. I've never been to Rome, Paul says, but the power of God has been there. And he's changed you, folks. He's changed you. I thank my God, he says in verse 8, through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's not giving Paul credit. That's giving God the credit. He hadn't even been there yet. And it didn't matter who they were, verse 14 says. If they were Greeks or they were barbarians, that's a neat little word, huh? They were wise, or if they were foolish, if they were Jew, verse 16, or if they were Greek, God saves. And he does save, regardless of where they come from. And it didn't matter what they had worshipped, or what they didn't worship. The degree that sin had controlled them or the darkness of their heart. Whether they were slaves or they were masters, whether they lived in Jerusalem, whether they lived in Rome, it was God alone who saves. God alone who saves. And that's the powerful nature of this gospel. Thoroughly powerful. God alone saves. There's no reference in it to what man can do. We don't help God along. Alright? No attempts that we can do to step it up, to get it more accessible to God's saving hand. We, we mark this phrase. Salvation is distinctively God's work. It is His work. And to understand that, as MacArthur had said, and I read it to you earlier, is to have one's time and eternity completely altered. Completely altered. Now, let's talk about power, since I've said it enough. The word is dunamis in the Greek, which people like to say, dynamite! They go blowing things up with it. Dunamis is ability. What it can do. When you use that word in a noun form, dunamis, it speaks of uh, ability. When you turn it into the verb, it's what one can do. 
Not what one wishes they can do. Not that. As if it's some potential power or some dreamed up power, uh, some, some aspiration that they're aiming for. It's not a wish. It's actual power. It's what one can do. So let's insert that into our phrase. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what God actually can do for salvation. It's reality. Those are, there are those who want to debate what God is able to do. It's an issue of power, I know. Let me read to you some statements first and then show you a contrast. You'll catch it. The statements come from uh, Charles Ryrie's book called Basic Theology. Excellent uh, use uh, from that book on understanding God. He takes just the three omnis. You know what those are, don't you? Omnipresent omnipotence, omniscience. Those three omnis. Some people come unglued by those three. I think they're wonderful. I like them. But he takes those three and he says, when it comes to omniscient, omniscience means that God knows everything. Things actual, things possible, effortlessly and equally well, he knows it all. Omnipresent. Omnipresent means that God is everywhere present with his whole being at all time. Wow, try to wrap your mind around that one. Omnipotence. Omnipotence means that God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his own nature. Right? Those are strong statements. There's a group years ago, and somehow their word still is hanging out there. They believed in the openness of God. The openness of God. This is what they said. God knows, and what God controls, uh, simply his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence, he brings those into consideration. said, God changes his mind because he does not know the future and cannot direct future events according to his will. Whether he's just as surprised by the events of the future as we are and limited by the decisions of man. God is controlled by time. God is controlled by the decisions of man. God is controlled by the circumstances and events of this world. That's his omnipotence to them. As to his knowledge, God perfectly knows what he can know. Got that? God perfectly knows what he can know, which is a great deal, but not everything. Future decisions do not yet exist, so they cannot be known. So they limit God, again, in time, as to his knowledge. He can only know what's happened up to the moment. He doesn't know the future. By the way, I had some guy come in and talk to me about that once. He was a, a firm believer in the openness of God, and he started in on this spiel about what God knows. I said, how did he know Cyrus's name about 400 years before Cyrus was born? He said, huh, I'll have to go look that up. How does God know the future? He says it all the time in Scripture, doesn't he? They can't wrestle with that one. They have this concept that God's limited knowledge keeps him from knowing the next moment. They also concerning his sovereignty. God is sovereign, but not in a comprehensive way, they said. He is sovereign 
he is so sovereign, he doesn't have to be sovereign. What is that? His omnipotence is flexible. He must be ready with plan B when plan A fails. Now, where was that in the book of Romans? Just in chapter 1? Where did you see God limited in his power, in his knowledge, in his, his ability to be present? Paul hadn't gone to Rome yet, and those people were saved. How'd that happen? The gospel and the power of God. I'll go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. I read you this verse, and I ask you a question here, real simple. It says in Ephesians 1, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. How could He do that? If he didn't know the next ten minutes. How could he have chosen us before this world was even spinning on its axis in this galaxy? How could God have done that if he's not all powerful, all omniscient? How could he have done that? He knew I would need to be saved. He sent his son to die for me long before in time I ever existed. Or even had sinned. He adopted me, if you read the rest of the passage, before I was born. He already has a seat reserved for me in the heavens, according to chapter 2, verse 6. How could he have done that, if he was any less than God? Strip away the power and the wisdom of God, and you have a God who is surprised by the fall of man. You have a God who must produce a plan to save man after the fact. You have a God who's uncertain that man will ever respond. You have a God who might change his mind. You have a God who will be surprised when you walk into heaven. You have a God incapable of keeping you saved. Do you want that God? That's the one the world is offering you right now. He's offering you a God like that. But I declare to you the omnipotent God. The one who has power. And that's what it says in our text today. He alone has the power to save because he alone possesses all power to save. He alone is the one who can transform us from the realm of darkness into the realm of light. He alone is the one who delivers us from the power of death and gives us the right to be called children of God. He alone is God. And He saves. Now, I don't need to be logical or somehow philosophical or even somehow a, a vast orator to explain all these things. Just start working your way through Scripture. You know what I have in front of me here? And my time doesn't allow me. All these verses on the power of God. All these verses on the power of God. All these verses on the power of God, from beginning to end, it talks about His power, to the very end where we're giving Him praise, because He has power. We're going to know it, inside and out, when we get there. Just start looking up the word power, and work your way through Scripture. You'll be overwhelmed with the power of our God. In the end, we're going to say, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. 
That's what we're going to say. Get used to saying it, okay? You're part of the chorus. You'll be up there saying it with the rest. So, what has Paul said here in chapter number 1? It's a simple thing, I believe. He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. It's ever-present, it's singularly possessed, it's thoroughly powerful, and I ask, is that where you are today? Have you been saved by the power of God? If you haven't been, I read you your list too this morning, didn't I? You're either in verse 1 through 17, or you're in verse 18 through 29. You're in one of these, there's no middle ground. You're saved by the power of God or you're not. As your pastor, I'm concerned about that. As your friend, I'm concerned about that. I want you to know where you stand in regard to your salvation. Do you believe that it's God who saves? Do you believe that He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that He can change you? Make you once an enemy, now a child of God through the power of the gospel. He says to everyone who believes. I like that word everyone, don't you? That means anyone here in this room. Up in balcony people too, believe it or not. He saves balcony people. He saves all of us. He saves and only Him. Is that where your trust lies today? If not, talk to Him. You're going to find out when we get to Romans 10, which is 10 weeks from now, but... Listen to it. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise from Him. Call on Him today. If you don't know Him as your Savior, call on Him today. It's the only one who can save you. The only one. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you today. Humbly because we're mindful of who we are. And how undeserving it is for us to have received the grace and the love, and the mercy, and the forgiveness you give. We're mindful of that, Lord, but we are also confident in the fact that you did give us that. You gave us your grace, and you gave us your love, and you gave us your mercy, and you gave us your forgiveness, and you've changed us for eternity because of your power, the power of the gospel. Thank you for what you have done. As recipients of your incredible salvation, we praise you. And Lord, if there's somebody among us even right now, just even one person who needs to know you by salvation, draw them to yourself right now. Only you can do it. And we plead, Lord, we we beg that you draw those to yourself. As you have done for us, change our lives for all eternity, Lord. Show them that they need you and you alone for their salvation. If, Lord, there's somebody who's trusting in themselves, Lord, you know how I was that way. For so long I trusted in my own power, my own ability to keep myself, my own ability to do good works, and you know how utterly rotten that was, what a failure that was. If somebody's living like that today, Lord, show them your power. 
convince them, Lord, that it's only you who can change a life. It's only you who gives access to heaven. It's not in what we've done, but in whom we believe. And I pray that you'll change them too. For too often we waste many years trying to somehow appease you. when all the while it's been the blood of Jesus Christ that has made the way. Lord, work in our hearts. We've got a long book ahead of us. And I pray one that changes us thoroughly. Convince us of these fundamental truths, we pray, that we may live that way. For your honor and your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.